Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Steve Hutchinson, and I'm the uh, outgoing director of the Practice-Based Professional Learning Centre for Excellence in Teaching and Learning here at the Open University. Pam Shakespeare, who started as a director on the 1st of October, um, uh, offers her apologies. She would, she would have done this introduction, but I'm afraid she's not very well at the moment and would, is likely to have entered into some kind of extreme coughing fit. So, uh, so, I'm, so I'm here uh, to welcome you to the Open University, welcome to colleagues who work at the Open University, and uh, welcome to approximately half the audience who are out with the university. And uh, I'm glad you managed to find us, um, and I hope you have a, have a good day. So it forced me now to welcome uh, Dave Bowd, Professor Dave Bowd from the uh, University of Technology in Sydney. Dave is a professor of adult education there, and um, he's written extensively about assessment experience and reflection over the years, and I'm sure that many of us um, will know his work and, and have been uh, very much influenced by, by it. Um, he's got a personal interest in, in practice-based professional learning, work-based learning, um, and has led uh, many institutional developments at, uh, at Sydney in that particular area. Um, Pam, whose who's, uh, notes I looked at before I came on, um, found a quote from Dave um, at a, for, for Scottish educators, and this was written in 2007, Dave. Um, and in it, Dave says that uh, we have scope to make far more changes to assessments than we're brave enough to do. Our ultimate goal as educators is to form students who have a capability to learn without us and learn that which we do not know. Now, it seems to me that that's a pretty significant challenge for higher education, um, and I'm sure, I'm sure you'll agree with that. Um, and I'm delighted that uh, Dave has agreed to come and talk to us about it today. So please, can you give Dave a warm welcome to the Open University? Uh, well, thank you very much, uh, Steve, for that uh, kind introduction. Mostly what I'll be talking about today is assessment of these three words on the, on the slide here. Um, and I was just thinking... Why would a group of sensible people sort of waste their morning talking about something that we curse about, that we think we waste a lot of our time on, and generally we doubt whether it really has much effect on our students when we do it? So why are we kind of crazy enough to, in a sense, bother with this phenomenon? Um, and that's one of the things that always disturbs me about assessment. Uh, assessment is often portrayed as something really boring, un uninteresting, and a chore that we have to engage in. And I think we've got to find a way of reinventing it in a way that makes it central and meaningful and actually interesting for us to engage in ourselves. Because unless we're excited and interested in the whole issue of assessment, then, you know, we, we're not spending our time very usefully and our students will pick up the message. And most of our students don't feel really delighted when they're about to be assessed. Um, uh, we didn't feel very delighted when we were about to be assessed as students. Um, so that's, that's where I want to start on, on, on the focus of assessment. One of the reasons I'm in this country at the moment is that I've got this project at the moment with the Australian Learning and Teaching Council, which is a bit like the HEA. And it's premised on this really ridiculous idea. And this really ridiculous idea is, if we were going to modify our assessment practices as if we thought making a contribution to students' learning after the end of the course was important, how would it look different from what we do now? And I'm struggling with this task at the moment. And a part of the presentation is my revealing to you uh, parts of my... Uh, my journey and parts of my struggle. So the whole issue of thinking about assessment, we learn about assessment through being assessed and assessing. It's a kind of a folk practice we pick up through doing. It isn't something that we often pay much conscious attention to. It isn't, much, isn't something we bring our intellectual apparatus to attend to. It's based upon assumptions we rarely question, and these assumptions shift over time, which I'll talk a bit about later and they may be rooted in concerns that are not relevant today. There's a kind of a terrible time lag in our thinking about assessment, and it's particularly a big time lag when we look at institutional assessment policies 
in that they represent something that occurred in the past and we're doing something different now. And my basic stance is that changing what we do in the light of new challenges requires thinking clearly about what assessment is for and ensuring that it doesn't inadvertently undermine our educational priorities. And I would argue that a lot of the things that we do on an everyday basis in most universities in the world are actually actively undermining some of our educational priorities. So how can we think differently about this? I think we need to think differently and some of the practices will emerge from that. We can also look around and see some very interesting practices that are going on now that can give us great um, um, stimulus for our thinking. But unless we actually get our conceptions right, unless we focus very much on what we're doing, then the practices will just be mere examples of interesting things. So this is the basic outline of what I want to talk about today. I want to start from where we're coming from and some institutional views of assessment. And um, yeah, they're not all completely boring, institutional views of assessment. Um, I want to talk about where we're going to and some of the new demands that uh, we're looking to assessment to address. I want to raise the question about a practice view. And, and one of the ideas I want to introduce into our discussion about assessment is how does the notion of practice modify it? And indeed, what is this notion of practice? I mean, this is, we're dealing with this in the context of a centre of excellence about practice-based learning. And I think one of the things that we need to problematise is the notion of practice and what that means. Talk a bit about the implications of a practice view for assessment and then talk a bit about a change in assessment. So one of the things I did for the book that's called Rethinking Assessment in higher education that came out a couple of years ago was I did this really kind of terribly scientific study. So I, I, I googled the words assessment policy in the uh, website for the UK Google and the Australian Google and I looked at the top ten hits and I did a kind of really quick and dirty discourse analysis on them just to find out what message were we getting from the ways in which universities represent assessment policy. So let's give us just three examples. Just This is very quick on passing. This is the good, nice straight up and down one from City University here. The process by which the university is able to confirm that a student has achieved the learning outcomes and academic standards for the module uh, or, and or award for the program for which he or she is registered. That's the kind of nice upright kind of view. Something from the University of West of England. And it's best to read this with a finger wagging at you. Okay, right. Remember the finger. It is of paramount importance that students, staff, external agency employers have confidence in the university's standards and assessment procedures. The recruitment of an increasingly diverse student population for whom value for money is a growing concern requires vigilance at program level to prevent assessment overload, particularly where programs are on modules from different fields of faculties. Blah, blah, blah. Equity and fairness. So that's another kind of representation of the kind of things you get in uh, assessment policies. And third one I want to mention here, which is a bit of a contrast. Assessment is the process of forming a judgment about the quality and extent of student achievement or performance, and therefore, by inference, a judgment about the learning itself. Assessment inevitably shapes the learning that takes place, that is, what students learn and how they learn it, and should reflect closely the purposes and aims of the course of study. I'm more sympathetic to that one than I am to some of the others because it actually captures some important things about judgment, which I'll want to come back to later. But if we look at that overall analysis of my wonderfully scientific study, um, then what we see in those assessment policies is a primary focus. And this is a completely overwhelming dominant focus. And it's on outcomes, it's on measurement, and it's on integrity. <laughs> it's about protecting our backs amongst other things. And that probably accounts for, well, it would be inappropriate to put a figure on it, but the overwhelming um, emphasis of these policies. And in fact, the single number of words that are used, I mean, you can probably guess what the single largest number of words is used to talk about, and that is the process of doing formal examinations. It's more about that than anything else in assessment policies. Secondary policy focus is on feedback, 
on improvement and of learning as a process. But that is very, very much in the minority. That's almost like an afterthought after we've been through the dominant focus. And there's a kind of incipient focus, which if you're generous, you can read into these policies about an emphasis on learning that occurs you know, as a result of um, what we do in universities. And these uh, statements represent multiple purposes of assessment. It's very clear that there is not one view of assessment. And we've got this problem. We've got one word in English, assessment, which means different contradictory things. Different institutional emphases, legality, quality, equity, and so on. Different audiences, you can tell they're written by to, to different, they're speaking to different people. Some to students, some to external bodies, some to staff. Interesting thing is, they also represent a change in assessment thinking over the years. And having been around in the assessment area for quite some time, it's quite noticeable that some of those changes are, are, are quite significant. And I would kind of dare to say that we're in probably one of our most, uh, uh, one of the biggest periods of change with regard to assessment in higher education that we've ever seen. And we're right in the midst of it. It's like, just like a recession. <laughs> we're right in the midst of it, but we can't see it yet. Okay? And, 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 and in, in a short time, we will become aware. And I think that's where we are on assessment uh, changes at the moment. So, second thing, where are we going? Basically, when we look at all the discussions of assessment, we can boil down the purposes of assessment to two main uh, emphases. And these are the two often contradictory notions of assessment. The purpose of assessment to certify achievement that leads to certificates and, and kind of bits of paper that uh, students can negotiate in the economy, and the purpose of aiding learning. That is, contributing to the ongoing learning that students you know, do. That's what they're here for. Um, and by and large, you know, the literature is, is organised around this. I've suggested that in the aiding learning one, we've paid a bit too much emphasis on the here and now a bit too much emphasis on helping the students with their current learning in order to meet the requirements of this particular module at this particular point in time, and that maybe it could be useful to think about a third purpose, which probably isn't intrinsically, fundamentally different from aiding learning, but it's aiding learning with a different um, um, commitment. It, it's, it's about fostering the learning that students will need beyond the end of the course. And I coined the term, unashamedly plagiarising it from the development, uh, um, international development literature, and called it sustainable assessment. That is, assessment that meets the need of the present, that is, it contributes to certification or formative assessment or whatever, without compromising the ability of students to meet their own future learning needs. And my argument is that we need to create assessments that do double duty, that is, they do whatever they, it says on the can for the immediate purpose right here and now, but also they make some significant contribution. Every single assessment act needs to make some significant contribution to students learning after they leave us. It builds their capacity to do something over and above the immediate ostensible task. So, where, we, where, where has um, assessment thinking come? Um, really, we can plot a number of eras of thinking about assessment. There's the era of conventional assessment in which we didn't even really think about it. Um, assessment was about um, testing what had been taught. You know, that's what it boiled down to. We didn't kind of regard it as a big deal. Um, you know, teachers set a test to see whether the students had picked up what they'd been telling them. In the 1950s and 1960s, um, the psychometricians came along and tried to clean up the act, and they cleaned up the act very well. Um, they provided a lot of technical solutions. They provided some vocabulary. They provided some concepts, concepts that we use today, concepts of reliability and validity and discrimination, although discrimination means something slightly different in the way in which we use it conventionally now. Um, 
and they got us to think about the act of assessment as an act of measurement. So they brought a scientific sensibility to the assessment process. In the 1980s and 1990s, um, a different set of concerns started to uh, uh, make themselves known and the whole issue of competency came in. So the issue wasn't what people knew in terms of knowledge, but what students could do. And what students could do is what we valued. And as a part of that, we picked up on the notion of authentic assessment, that is, assessment that, in some important sense, um, reflected something that students experienced as real in the world. So that we changed our tasks from abstract tasks to ones that seem to have some real connection with something that students thought to be meaningful because they might do something about it. And in many places, for example in Australia at the moment, we're completely immersed in the generic attributes um, agenda in which we're redesigning all our courses in order that we should make sure they focus on the transferable elements of what is being included rather than just the, the, the particular disciplinary or professional aspects of those courses. And seeing it laid out like this, the obvious question is what's next? Where is our thinking about assessment moving us to now? What are we entering into? And what will that need, uh, leave us needing to ditch from some of our earlier thinking? And what we have at the moment is we have an uneasy collection of all these different ideas about assessment that within our universities we simultaneously hold them. Different people hold them. Some, some are held by one person even within their own practice. And some of these things do not really stack up. Some of these things do not add together very well. And I think what we need is we need a way of thinking about assessment that is rather clearer about what we're doing um, and enables us to say, well, there are some aspects of the educational measurement tradition that we want to leave behind and there are some elements of that tradition we want to embrace in our new way of thinking and similarly for those other things. So, just a quick uh, rehearsal of some of the recent changes that we've seen in assessment in higher education. Uh, some of these aren't terribly recent, of course, um, the move from a norm-referenced base to a standards-based approach has been creeping up on us um, for a long period of time. I know my own institution and a number of other Australian institutions made this change in their policy more than 20 years ago. But today we can still find traces of norm-referenced thinking in a lot of the assessment activities that go on within each of our institutions. And this was a very important step the idea that we should move away from grading students on the basis of how well they did vis-a-vis -vis other people in their cohort to how well do they do vis-a-vis -vis some set of standards and using some criteria to judge them by was one of the incredible great leaps forward that were made. And in fact, ironically, um, ditching the norm-referenced uh, basis was the most important thing we could do for the maintenance of academic standards although at the time it was regarded as a kind of great step backwards in terms of academic standards. We've moved from testing what has been taught, the conventional assessment, to assessing specific learning outcomes. And of course what this does is it places enormous weight on the way in which we formulate learning outcomes. And if we formulate learning outcomes in particular ways, it can create an impossible rod for our back as far as assessment's concerned and an even bigger rod for the students, of course. We've moved away from a, a dominant emphasis on examinations and tests to much more diverse approaches to meet diverse outcomes, and it would be very, very unusual outside some of our really elite <laughs> institutions to find um, anything that, that didn't have a very uh, diverse diet. We've moved from unilateral assessment to much more active involvement the participation of students in various aspects of the process. And we've moved from assessment as a separate domain to align an assessment with learning. We no longer completely pull them apart 
we do recognise that they are together in some sense. And we've moved from fragmenting assessment tasks to alignment with graduate attributes and some, albeit prototypical attempts to try to make things coherent across programs. So that's all I want to say by way of kind of some introductory remarks about assessment. And I want to come back to that a little later. But now I want to make an excursion into the notion of practice. And I want to view assessment through the lens of practice. And I'll say a bit more about what I mean by practice. And why should we start on this basis? Now, the notion of practice focuses attention outside the course. It focuses attention on what people do in the world um, and enables us to have a discipline that we can apply to our programs that says, well, how would someone who is a practitioner of this kind of uh, work, this kind of knowledge, this kind of uh, activity, think about and do these kinds of things? And they don't have to be just the, the traditional practice-based professions. They could be um, you know, anything. could even include the academic profession as a, a form of practice. Because a lot of the things we do in assessment don't align to any form of practice anywhere in the world. They don't align to academic practice even. And this is the kind of the, 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 the terrible state we've got ourselves into. We've created a self-referential world in the educational domain that looks to other things in the educational domain and doesn't look beyond it. And I want to suggest that we need to start with practice by, as a, as a kind of lever, as a tool for looking beyond a kind of the artificially constructed world of courses and teaching and learning uh, and so on and so forth. So actions have consequences beyond those of assessment requirements and teaching and these create possibilities and limitations. So we can look for consequences. And also, one of the things about practice is that in a practice situation, the judgments of those in that situation make a difference to the people that are involved. So there, there are consequences beyond the marks or the grades. So what am I talking about here when I'm talking about practice settings? I'm talking about settings in which there's a direct engagement um, of students in situations for which real consequences arise from what they do. And the real consequences are consequences for them as a person, they're on the line, and they're consequences for the people they're working with. You know, they can make a mistake that affects other people, that affects the world out there. So the practice settings I'm thinking of are ones when the learner acts as a practitioner not as a student. They may be a student, of course, but in the moment of practice, they are being a practitioner, albeit in controlled conditions, albeit with someone not too far away that can pick up the pieces, but the experience is of being on the line. And there's a lot more than marks or grades at stake. It shifts attention away from those things. So let's think a bit more about practice. Practice is one of those terrible, terrible words that appears everywhere. Um, and I'm sure um, Steve and the people in the centre here have, uh, uh, have confronted this issue themselves. We've got this, all, this awful uh, practice theory divide, which I think we should plunge a stake through the heart of this uh, practice theory divide business, which has got us nowhere. Um, we talk about good practice, we talk about best practice, we talk about effective practice. Professions have codes of practice. We talk about professional practice. Um, we have people coming along here and uh, it's here talking about communities of practice and we talk about practice-based learning. So we've, we've got this pervasive kind of view of practice kind of all around us. And, and sometimes I wonder, what is it that we're trying to get at? What is it that we're trying to capture? What is it that's so desirable about the practice word that attracts us to it. So an important distinction to make, and I think it's an important one to make for those of us who, who teach in programmes where we send our students out to practice. We need to make a distinction between 
practice as a location for activity or doing an activity, so teachers go on teaching practice or nurses go on clinical practice, from practice as a theoretical construct which refers to a particular nature of activity. And the nature of practice and the reason why it's so attractive both to educators and to researchers is that practice is where skills, knowledge and dispositions come together. They come together and perform certain kinds of work. There's a kind of a link between knowledge and the person that uses the knowledge. It's, it's a kind of a... a, a um, it provides leverage into situations in ways that knowledge doesn't, in which skills doesn't, in which activity doesn't. And as uh, Shatsky talked about, practice best names the primary social thing. And we're in a very strange period, as in research, in the social sciences, in which there's a new positioning of the notion of practice within knowledge development. And some people have talked about the practice turn. Um, we had the, the reflective turn a few years back, um, and that was named by Schoen and some of his colleagues there as a reflective turn. And now there's an argument that we're in the midst of a practice turn in which we are reassessing, we're rethinking about some of the, 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 the things that we kind of do in terms of the notion of practice. And the key features of a practice view for our current, current purposes, I mean, and, and there's a, a whole explosion of theoretical work um, about practice, which we won't go into now because it's, it's rather too diverse and some of it's complicated and some of it's contradictory. But this, for me, is the essence. First of all, practice is necessarily contextualised. We can't talk about practice independently of the situations in which it occurs. There isn't an abstract thing called practice. Practice has to occur in places, with things, with people, whatever. Practice is also necessarily embodied. Embodiment isn't something that's an option. You know? Practice is done by practitioners. And it's whole people that have motives, feelings and intentions. And we cannot discuss practice independently of people who practice. So there isn't a kind of a thing out there that's independent. It's a re essentially a relational idea. And practice is co-constructed. Practice is only meaningful when there's, a, when there's some kind of understanding that it occurs in relationships to others and their views of practice construct it just as much of those as a given practitioner. So you know, um, a professional and a client co-construct the practice. Uh, the, the professional can't do their practice independently of the client and independently of how the client sees it. So what a practice view does is it necessarily puts us into the eyes and expectations of others. It means that something that we do isn't something that we just can invent, we can draw on our knowledge and perform. It only has meaning in the light of its social construct or its social location. So, if we move from that idea of practice to the kind of more commonly used one of professional practice, what changes do we see? And I think we can see these changes right across all the discipline areas, you know, teaching, nursing, um, medical work, lawyers, engineers, wherever practice occurs. There's a shift from individual practice in which sole practitioners do their own thing with clients of one kind or another to collective practice in which practitioners are kind of clustered together they might specialise, they might differentiate what they do, um, but they certainly don't do it in isolation of others. So there's a collective rather than an individual character to it. Um, it's always multidisciplinary now and increasingly transdisciplinary in character 
in which you can't actually necessarily even locate some of the disciplines that are coming together to, uh, to operate in professional practice. But in the traditional areas like um, you know, the health areas, um, the education areas, they're almost the sole bastions of multidisciplinary practice now. In almost the whole of the rest of the occupation in the society, that is breaking down. In business today, people don't operate as isolated professionals. They, they do what is ever necessary in order to do the present project or the present work. very important part of the changing context is we're now looking to the co-production of practice and the co-construction of knowledge. So health is a very interesting example. So it used to be that we went along to health practitioners in order that they could advise us uh, and, and tell us and prescribe things for us that we should do. Now for all sorts of reasons... And one of the reasons is the awful demographics that we're going to look forward to is that um, as we age, there will not be enough health practitioners in order to hold the traditional conception that we have now of what health practitioners do. We will have to, in the future, co-construct our health with a much smaller number of health practitioners. And maybe that's a good thing that we need to be doing anyway. So we're not just talking about co-construction of the practice, but co-construction of the very heart of what people do. So, if we look at these, these themes here, collective, multidisciplinary, co-production, co-construction, we've got a real kind of um, a clash of cultures here. What we've got is an increasingly um, complex, collective co-productive nature of work in society and we've got this wonderful individualistic notion of assessment in educational institutions in which the icon is the individual mark or grade now we give individual transcripts to people we make our judgments of them as individuals there's a tiny bit of other things creeping in but they're often quite controversial so we've got this kind of uh, interesting tension emerging between what we do in the educational world and what goes on in the world outside the educational world. Um, And the question is, can we sustain this kind of tension between the individual and the collective in the way that we've maintained it up until now? So, had had a little flurry into the the world of practice and the notion of practice, um, perhaps we can return now to some implications for assessment. And there are four things that I want to pick up on. Uh, what to consider, some contrasting models, thinking about students' judgment and the implications of viewing assessment as about informing judgment. The conception that I have, just as a way of overview at the moment, is that my view of assessment is that we need to move it much more towards the notion of judgment and not just teachers judging students or assessors judging students but developing the capacity for students to judge themselves and their peers and I'm not talking about bits of self-assessment or bits of peer assessment I'm talking about a fundamental shift of the way in which we view assessment as a notion of informing judgment. So, my argument is that assessment is about judgment. And what we have currently is that we mostly, in most universities now, regard assessment as judging learning outcomes against standards. (laughs) It might not be formulated in exactly that way, but that is probably the kind of the common notion that we're operating on now. Assessment must contribute to learning. We had those purposes of assessment earlier and we had the purpose of certification. There is no point in certification if no learning is there to be certified. So learning must precede certification. Learning is the raison d'etre of what we do, 
and we must put learning up front. And certification must cope with the demands of learning rather than the other way around. We've actually let the certification kind of uh, cat out of the bag and it's running loose uh, and we need to put it back in the bag. Sorry for those of you who have cats. It's rather a kind of unfortunate metaphor. Um, I'm allergic to small animals, so it's a metaphor that appeals to me. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, so we're talking about contributing to learning, and there's two aspects of that. There's the learning that, ne- that is necessary now as an intrinsic part of the, the course module, the program, whatever. But there's also that building capacity for learning in the future. Because unless we do that, we actually haven't equipped students at all yeah. And as I said earlier, assessment is about both informing students' judgments as well as, make, as well as making judgments on them. And the point I want to make is that summative assessment alone, assessment for certification alone, is far, far too risky. Far too risky. Because if all we do is we certify students on the basis of their current knowledge and skills and we don't pay attention to their capacity to build knowledge and skills and to monitor their own learning and know what they know and know what they don't know, we're sending them off into society in a very dangerous manner because they have the stuff but they don't have the capacity to renew themselves. So we don't want to get ourselves in the situation where, you know, the course was successful, the operation was successful, but the patient died. Um, we need to think about the risks that we're taking by too much of an exclusive focus on assessment for certification and ask ourselves, can we really trust ourselves? Will other people trust us to only focus on that? And what this leads to is students must necessarily be involved in assessment. And this is for fundamental educational reasons. It's about fundamental reasons to do with the development of society and of keeping ourselves safe. It is not about some misguided notion of democracy and involvement of students, some wishy-woolly notion that we should be nice to them. Students have got to be involved in assessment not because it's about being nice to students but because they necessarily have to be in assessment, involved in assessment because they need to build the capacity to be assessors. If we've got any notion of lifelong learning, what goes along with lifelong learning is the notion of lifelong assessment. doesn't sound so nice, doesn't sound so attractive but that's what we're buying into. Effective lifelong learners are effective assessors of their own learning and are able to contribute to the learning of others. So there's no choice, in my view, about the very active participation of students in assessment. And it isn't just about making decisions. It's not about, oh, well, can I be assessed on an exam or, or, or assignments? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about really getting inside it, really understanding what standards are, really knowing what criteria are and how they operate, of being able to apply them in various ways. Now, my colleague, uh, Paul Hager, had this little contrasting uh, um, view of assessment a few years ago now. But it sums up quite nicely, and I'm not going to go through the details here, between the contrast between the scientific measurement model, which a lot of our discussion about assessment in education still seems to be based upon, and a judgmental model. And my argument is that we need to move in the direction of a much more judgmental view, not a judgmental view, a view of assessment as judgment. So let's actually start to unpack developing judgment a bit. So the first notion in the argument is that students must develop the capacity to make judgments about their own learning. Because if they can't make judgments about their own learning, they won't be very effective students now and they won't be very effective people in the future. And of course, we recognise now that 
a lot of our students, our good students, do this almost automatically without us having to do anything at all. And what happens is that we then say, oh, that's an attribute of really good students. What we should be concluding is that, well, we haven't developed the capacity in the others. Not the fact that some good students have it without us doing anything. What do we do in order to build the capacity of others? We're faced with the problem that we can never provide students with as much feedback or as detailed feedback as they, well, certainly as they want. You know, if we look at the National Student Survey, I think this is the prize institution in the whole country. It's the, the one that does best on feedback. Um, but even here, you can't do enough of it. And, more importantly, maybe that's not such a good thing, giving students too much feedback. Maybe we need to actually shift the focus away from us giving feedback towards how students can get feedback from a variety of sources. Because some kinds of feedback can create dependency. And capacity for self-assessment is central to students having informed judgment. But if we only focus on self-assessment, and I've done an awful lot of work on self-assessment over the years, an awful lot of studies, um, empirical studies, I've reviewed other studies and so on and so forth, it's all very nice, but it doesn't go anywhere. If we're only looking at self-assessment, we need to pack up and go home. Looking at the, the studies of self-assessment, like sprinkling salt on a meal, you know, it's something you kind of do as a bit of an afterthought. It's not integral, and it's kind of, a, um, you know, you do it to compensate. What I want to suggest is that we need to build this kind of thinking right fundamentally into all the things that we do, because almost all the examples in the literature of self-assessment are one-off, uh, isolated. They don't build over modules. They don't build over time, and so on and so forth. And the other thinking about developing judgment that we need to take on board is students need to understand that, that judgment is a multifaceted thing, that there are communities of judgment and different people in communities of judgment make different kinds of judgments. Now, in a traditional university, all of that is funneled through the lecturer. So the lecturer acts as a surrogate for all the various communities of judgment that, that take a view. And I want to suggest that we need to disaggregate that. We need to think about what are the appropriate communities of judgment that students need to engage with, to be, um, to think about, to take account of, and to position themselves with respect to. And I mentioned peers, practitioners, professional bodies here, but the, the, the task is to actually find what is the appropriate type of judgment, what is the appropriate community of judgment for any kind of um, activity. So, some implications. One implication is that we need to think not about some of the old things that we used to kind of be obsessed with about assessment, like reliability and validity. I'm not saying that's not important, but there's something that's far, far more important than that, and that is the consequences the consequences of our assessment acts. Do our acts of assessment build students' capacity to make judgments about their learning that go beyond the end of our course? If we can answer that yes, then we can start to worry about those other things. If we can't answer yes to that, the rest of reliability and validity is a mere frippery. We need to kind of insert in one sense, get back to basics, and the basics are the capacity for people to extend and renew their learning, not bits of learning now. Of course, they do need bits of learning now. I'm not kind of arguing against that, but we shouldn't focus too much on that. We need to focus on other things. They will need the bits of learning now in order to kind of do all the things we're talking about. Another implication is that we need to focus on fostering reflexivity and self-regulation through every aspect of a course, not just assessment tasks. And what I mean by that is that we need to expose and reveal 
the processes of judgment? What are the standards that are applying to particular kinds of work? What kind of criteria do we think about when we're dealing with problems and issues? And we need to reveal what you might call the, 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 the knowledge structure of judgment as we go through, as a normal part of the curriculum, as a normal tool to help students to kind of cope with um, the various tasks they deal with. And, of course, we need to do that within the context of the knowledge domain that we're you know, working in. But just dealing with the knowledge domain without thinking about reflexivity and self-regulation isn't quite enough. We need to recognise the variety of contexts in which learning occurs and is utilised because judgment isn't independent of context. And one of the issues that... Um, you know, we've, we've taken on board quite successfully is that often we contextualise a particular assessment task so that we know the context in which the judgments are occurring and that works quite successfully with mature students who, who have experience of the situations we're describing. We need to find ways of doing that better with students that are, uh, come more directly from the educational system without having those other experiences. Enormously important is to stage opportunities for developing these capacities throughout programmes. The, the, the problem with the whole self and peer assessment and the whole innovative assessment uh, movement is that it wasn't very good at building capacity over programmes, over courses, over modules. And that's one of the problems we've got as a profession, that we're not terribly good at coordination <clears throat> across modules. We pay a lot more lip service to it now than we used to, but there's a real issue in how do we tra translate that into practice. So assessment must be integrated with learning and integrated with the programme and over time. <clears throat> so just to summarise some of the issues about changing assessment, ongoing assessment for learning is vital. Performance will be judged by the standards of the practice itself, not an idealisation of it. This is the notion of the authentic. There are far more things to learn, know and do than can possibly be included in the judgments of any given other. And, of course, there are far more things we can assess in terms of our existing learning outcomes than we can possibly fit into any kind of assessment regime. So we've got another interesting dilemma there. What do we really prioritise? And what we prioritise in our assessment is the major act of communication to our students of what we really value. And I'm always disturbed by looking at people's assessment tasks and trying to work out from them what is really valued. And sometimes if you reflect that back to them, they say, well, that isn't really you know, what I hope our students will get out of the course. But I say to them, but that's what you value, that's what you judge, that's what you assess. Learning is embodied in assessment needs to work with this rather than ignore it. So, what should this lead us to emphasise? The first thing is I think we need to think about how we involve students in all aspects of assessment processes especially in practising judgement. If all that happens is that students produce work and we make a judgement about that work, we're not actually giving them much practice in making judgements. We're not scaffolding them into the judgement-making process. So the question is, what do we need to do both preceding the task, during the task and after the task that helps foreground and build students' capacity for making judgments. And that's what I mean by students being active agents in assessment rather than passive recipients of it. <coughs> it also means that we need to identify the community of practice and assessment in setting standards and monitoring outcomes. And it isn't something that we <coughs> need to do. It's something we need our students to help our students do. Because one of the questions, I mean, most of my research at the moment is about learning in workplaces. And I'm not talking about students in workplaces, I'm talking about normal people you know, in workplaces. 
Uh, and uh, one of the things that people are continually asking themselves in work is, what constitutes doing this work well? You know, it's fundamental. It's every day. It's like, how do we how do we tell? You know, are we doing a good job here? And nobody comes along and tells them. You know, they may need to consult standards. They may need to consult, consult you know protocols. They may need to consult all sorts of things. But nobody's actually coming along and saying this is what constitutes good work. Good work is created in the process of doing it. And we need to help students think about how that happens. And maybe we need to think rather more about the notion of assessment as the calibration of judgment. So that rather than think in terms of assessment in terms of us judging students, maybe we need to think about how are we helping students calibrate their own judgments of their work in our assessment practices. So what's important is what someone knows and doesn't know. And if they've got a misconception about what they know and don't know, that's far more serious than what they know and what they don't know. If they know they don't know, they can do something about it. If they know that they know, they can operate on that basis very successfully. What we need to be really worried about, really, really, really worried about, is people who think they know things when they don't. So maybe we need to focus our assessment more on bridging the gap between what students' judgments are of their own work and what their work is manifested than we do on some other absolute notion of how good the work is. It's the, the whole story about the, uh, the surgeon. Do you want to go along and have an operation from a surgeon who's got... 60% on his practical exam. Yeah. And I don't think any of us here would want to do that. What we would like to know is that this particular surgeon can perform the procedure we want them to perform to a certain standard, you know, and he, will, you know, he or she will lay out you know, what the, the probabilities and risks are. And that person will lay out the fact that we might be much better off going along to some other surgeon in order to have this procedure done because this other surgeon has much better outcomes. So that person knows what they know and knows what they don't know. And I'd feel happy about that. Well, I'd feel happy about it as long as there was a surgeon somewhere that could perform <laughs> the procedure. So, um, coming along to the end now, uh, I just put this up because these are the, uh, the features of assessment practice that I'm playing with on my current project. What I'm doing at the moment is I'm developing a, a website that provides some guidance for people that want to pick up the agenda of developing assessment to build students' capacity for making judgments that, for learning after the course. And these are the, some of the categories that I'm working with. I'm very happy to talk about some of these um, later in, in discussion. And within each of these that I've identified maybe you know, half a dozen or so you know, particular you know, approaches within them. And then I'm also identifying lots of examples of people doing things that you know, manifest these in different disciplines. But it gives you a bit of a flavour for the kind of um, agenda that uh, I'm trying to develop at the moment. So, the title said, Assessment, Experience and Reflection. And I've said very little, well, I've actually said a lot about experience, but I actually haven't used the experience word. And I've actually said a lot about reflection, although I haven't used the reflection word. Um, so, practice and the development of practice both incorporates experience and reflection. So, it, what you could say that I'm arguing is an experience-based view of assessment. Because what we need to do is to help students embody in their own experience principles of good practice and assessment and be able to kind of apply them in their normal work. 
And of course, we must always be mindful, and this is a kind of a well-rehearsed uh, uh, item, that assessment is a relational concept. It can only be discussed in terms of what students bring. So it doesn't matter what assessment practice, what assessment method we use, it will be radically changed by what students bring to that situation, what expectations they have. And, and the, one of the examples I cite is the multiple choice test. We can actually design wonderful, sophisticated multiple choice tests to test the most amazing range of knowledge. However, if students come along to our particular module and the only experience they've had of multiple choice tests is of rather poorly designed, low-level tests of memorization, then it doesn't matter how good our wonderful multiple choice test is, they will operate on the basis of their experience of tests of that kind and they will start cramming, which will be completely inappropriate for what we want them to do. Reflection is a key element of being an informed judge of one's own learning. So reflection is a very important part of, of, of what I'm talking about here and the embodiment of um, judgment. And of course I always like to have this one in, it always riles some people in the audience. Assessment of reflection needs to be approached with great caution. That, 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 assessment, that reflection is something that we do need to foster, we need to foster it greatly and we can easily drive it away by inappropriate assessment practices. But I think that some of the directions that I'm talking about this morning can push us in the direction of um, fostering reflection without destroying it. So, in summary, the process of developing capacity for informed judgment is central to all practice. So our business in universities should be this as a very central goal. And it's not just a central goal for assessment, it's a central goal for the whole curriculum. The design and selection of assessment tasks is a key part of teaching and learning, and it's often the most satisfying, the most creative, the most interesting part. And if we do it well, we can create wonderful, interesting tasks for our students and also avoid the burden on ourselves. Now, I know at the Open University, the people here, it's not a burden on the people here because they get someone else outside to do it. But for all the rest of you who are not from the central part of the Open University, then um, uh, it can help to make much more satisfying uh, tasks for ourselves. We need to ensure that all assessment activities equip students for future learning. One of the things I like to do is to take every single assessment item that I've got any involvement with, of any course that I've got any involvement in, and ask the question, in what ways is this particular task building students' capacity for their future learning? How does it help them make judgments? And if the answer is, well, it's not at all obvious how it does that, then it's something we need to do. It's something we need to fix. And we might need to fix it quite simply. It might mean just some minor modification of the task. It might mean some modification to what students do prior to the task. Uh, or it might mean something more substantial. But my experience of looking at some of these situations is that often we can actually make a big impact without a major change. So the issue for me is the, the vision, the clarity, the direction, and of being really, really clear about what we're doing. And that doesn't necessarily mean we do something radically different, but we can change some things that make a real difference. Central issue is involving students as active agents in assessment. So it's, a, it's kind of commonplace now we need to do student-centred learning and, and all that, and students need to be actively involved in learning. But let's just remind ourselves, assessment is such an intrinsic part of learning that's got to be a part of student involvement too. And finally, we need to plan programmes of course units to scaffold students into becoming increasingly sophisticated judges of their own learning. And this is something that they can't do very well when they start, so they need some practice in doing some aspects of that when they start. And hopefully as they go through the course, they get more effective at doing that. And we need to provide opportunities that enable them to practice being better at doing that. 
So for me, this agenda doesn't start you know, in the midst of the course. It starts on day one. So what are we doing on day one that helps progress this agenda? If we can start to think of that, then some of the rest of it might follow. So, thank you. Well, thanks very much, Dave. That's a really uh, provocative um, and interesting uh, talk that you've given us. Now, what I'd like to do is, um, if you could please hold the questions that you've got in your minds. I'm just uh, reminded of Dave's comment about knowing what you know and what you don't know, and I guess it's uh, knowing what questions you want to ask um, is more important than um, not knowing, you know, knowing what you know and what you don't know. Anyway, the um, the idea is that uh, we're going to have a session following lunch um, where we're going to talk about the work that Dave's been involved in, um, and we're going to ask you to contribute through um, through questions. There are some pieces of flip chart paper which are just outside this this room as you as you go outside. Um, and Mark, who's chairing the session this afternoon, has asked, please, could you write your questions down on the uh, flip chart paper? Um, if you see a question that you are already written that you'd like to ask, if you could put a big tick next to it, then we'll get some sense of the questions, the issues, and so forth that we'll, 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 that we'll discuss this afternoon. And Mark's going to use those questions as a way of opening up the conversation. Anyway, I'd like to say, uh, again, that's a fascinating uh, uh, conversation there, Dave, and we look forward to picking it up this afternoon. But again, just uh, thanks to Dave for his contribution.